Westmount, take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Holy Scriptures. If you're visiting with us or do not have a Bible, look on one of the chair racks in front of you. You will see Bibles there for you to track along with. Exodus chapter 2, chapter 2. Let us begin as we just get back into this study. Let's begin with a reading of our passage for the morning. Let me start with that. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And as his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's God's word in our passage for today. So you consider that account, beloved, and woven into our study of that passage this morning. I want to do this. I want to bust a number of myths that we have. I want to bust a number of myths, indeed, some myth busters this morning. That's what I want to do. The first myth that I want to bust is this. There is no such thing as chance or coincidence. I cannot be clear about that because God's word cannot be clear about that. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as coincidence. Yes, we are a superstitious bunch, are we not? But there is no such thing as coincidence. That may surprise some of you, may unsettle some of you, but it is true. And track with me, if it is true, then that statement has implications such as this. If that is true, there's no such thing as chance, then that means that something or someone is behind every single event that's happened in human history. Someone or something is behind every single detail in the universe. That, of course, would be the logical opposite to the reality that there is no chance. Now, some of you hear that and say, really? Someone behind everything? I mean, all of it? Every little detail? Some of you might be saying this morning, how could that be? Well, I pray this morning that God grants for some of us new eyes and for others of us renewed eyes to see this truth in the pages of his word. Listen, it is God, almighty God, God alone that controls all things. The word of God, the word open in front of you cannot be clearer. There is no chance. There is no randomness of events. God alone controls all things. Listen, God is indeed over, above, and in every single detail of every single event. This truth is just shot through God's Word. I mean, if you open up God's Word, turn anywhere in God's Word and you will see this. It's all over the place. And this truth of God presiding over every detail in the universe is known as this. In fact, it's been known for centuries by this, it's known as the doctrine of God's divine providence. The doctrine of God's divine providence. And we would define it this way. Div divine providence is this. God's preserving of his creation 
operating in every event in the world and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. That is indeed a big definition and a big truth, and I'm going to repeat it one more time. Divine providence is God's preserving of his creation, see it, operating in every event in the world and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. That's providence. Now, the providence of God, even as you hear that definition, is a broad and deep and comprehensive theological doctrine. We want to make sure we're clear on that this morning. We are not able, nor could we ever this morning, touch on all the rich, finer bits of this theology. However, we must make a few important comments by way of introduction, a topic such as God's providence begs it. God's providence is wide in scope, encompassing every single thing in creation. Beloved market, from the universe to nations to man and beast, right down to cells and atoms, God is providentially over it all. That means, to put it simply, there is nothing in heaven and on earth that is immune to God's sovereign hand. God's providence is also powerful in what it preserves and upholds. This is beautiful stuff. Of our God. Hebrews 1 3, Mark, it says of this same creation that our Lord upholds the universe, listen to this, by the word of his power. Did you catch that? By the word of God, everything around you is upheld. That's your God. That is preservation of everything that is seen in this universe by a single word of the Almighty. Similarly, in Colossians 1:17, we're reminded that in our Lord, All things, that's all things, hold together. Nothing is outside of that divine glue. It means simply every single thing in all creation depends, mark it, beloved, depends on God's sovereign hand. It means, beloved, people may deny their dependence on God, but it doesn't make it less true, does it? They are dependent on God. God's providence is also pervasive in what it causes and it works through. Now, here's where we move to another layer and follow with me. God is the first cause. He's the primary cause of all things. And he works through our second cause actions. Do you see that? God is the primary cause, the first cause of all things. He is the initial mover. He is the decreer. But he works through, and this is amazing, through the second cause, the very real choices and causes of us. There's an amazing, amazing truth. The Bible is simply saturated with this biblical truth that we just demonstrated of God's initiation and work through our action. In Genesis 45, 5, let me just give you a few. Joseph says it was actually God, not his brothers, that sent Joseph to Egypt. And of course, you would read that text and say, I know who sent him to Egypt. It was his brothers, their actions. No, Joseph says God was working to make that happen. God, the first cause, initiated the movement there. You, the second cause, were worked through by God. Pro- uh, Proverbs 21.1 says, A king's heart, now you have the inner recess of man, a king's heart, what does it say, is in the hand of the Lord. Listen to this, the king's heart, God turning it as he wills. Isn't that amazing? The, the heart of the king is in God's hand, right? And he's just steering it as God wills. What about 2 Samuel 16, 11, when Shimei, do you remember Shimei? David and his men are walking along the road, and there's a guy throwing rocks, kicking up dust, cursing David. And what does David's right-hand military man say? David, just give me the word, and I will cut his head off. You know, I'm, I'm tired of this. And what does David say? David says, leave him alone, because he says this, verse 11, because it is the Lord who has told him to. Does that make Shimei's actions uh, any less? No, those are real actions, but it's God working through providentially Shimei. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And for, in uh, Philippians 2.13, we're told that it is God who works in you. He is the primary mover, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beloved, that is all God. And of course, we're told in the verse before for us to do something, to work out the salvation given to us. But here... In verse 13, we're told it's his sovereign initiating hand. 
We could list many more and spend the morning just looking at the providence of God in Scripture. God's providence, His initiation, His concurrence in all things. But here it is, does not absolve us of responsibility. And I want to be clear on that this morning. Because He is the first mover doesn't mean we don't move. Consider Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.23. Mark it, he says, This Jesus... Here, sovereign hand of God, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's God's plan. So clear. It's all God. And then this, then this, you crucified, you, he looks at them and says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. That is the second choice of man. That is, beloved, man held accountable for his choices. In other words, you men are on the hook. You men are on the hook. And beloved, God's providence means simply this, that God moves the details. His sovereign, omnipotent hand is working first and with the movements and choices of all of his creation. It's providence. And finally, we must say that God's providence is final in what it ordains and decrees. God's providence always works to its accomplished end. I was thinking of this this past Wednesday when Jeremy took us through authority. And as he noted Wednesday night, you have these beautiful chapters in Isaiah. If you want, you can turn to them now. Isaiah 44, right through 46. Just going to read you a sample. Maybe you just take them in with new ears. Listen to the providence of God in these verses. Isaiah 44, 24 to 28. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Next chapter, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think we see that, don't we? Lord is God alone, working all things. Did you catch that? From the seas to the mountains to creations, using, working through all of it to his end, because he is God Almighty. Simply, God's providence means that God works through all things to accomplish his purposes. Yes, the providence of God is one of those overwhelming doctrines. Maybe you're feeling it now. It's just one of those overwhelming doctrines that we cannot escape from the pages of Scripture. His sovereign hand over and through all things is, beloved, the divine gasoline in which events unfold in history. We ready and remind ourselves of this great truth because it is the backdrop of the history that we're going to look at this morning. In these opening chapters of the book of Exodus, we have, of course, already looked at the sovereign providential hand of God, preserving his people from Canaan to Egypt. Remember, the transition from people, remember, descendants and people to what? To nation, to a nation. The remnant, not by coincidence but by the hand of providence, brought safely into Egypt by God's hand through the evil choices of man. 
We have seen the hand of providence, like we did last week, work through the evil choices of Pharaoh and his oppression. Do you remember that? God's hand working through the evil decree of Pharaoh. That's how powerful our God is. And working through evil for the good of God's people. To multiply the Israelites and spread them in the land. And that recap brings us to another myth that we want to bust this morning. And it is this. The myth people believe that nothing bad happens to Christians. Nothing bad happens to Christians. You know, people believe that. Sadly, I mean, you don't have to venture far in line to see legions of people believing that. Yeah, beloved, hold your, your copy of God's word. That is not what is promised, is it? Bereans, that's not what's promised in God's word, is it? Consider Romans 8.28. God's word says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen carefully. The word does not say that nothing bad will happen to Christians. Rather, the word says that whatever does happen and all things that do happen will somehow by God's sovereign hand eventually work out and be seen for good. In fact, that's far more incredible a promise than just this God that gives out candy to people all the time. This is the God you want to serve, who can work through all things for his good. That's the God you want. Similarly, God promised Israel good. God covenanted them for good. Yet he didn't promise Israel that they would not face bad or see evil. In fact, consider what is often missed alongside God's promise for good. You can turn with me to Genesis 15, just the book before. Again, these reminders are so important as we begin. Of course, there was the promise to Abraham, the covenant, right, that was given starting in chapter 12. But then in chapter 15, remember we said this two weeks ago, it's as if God drills down and he gives the details. Listen carefully. We'll start in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they served, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." You know, there's so much in what God says here that we need to see. But look particularly at verse 13. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. I mean, this is woven into the, the covenant promise. Woven into that promise is you will receive affliction. How often do we miss these things? So we have not only promise, but we have precision, 400 years. And we have persecution. And you know what's missed so often when you look at what God is saying to his people, God says, I have declared this will happen. This is prophecy. This is God saying, this will come to pass, and I'm going to work through these things. Not once does he say, I have a, a stage of puppets and watch what I'm going to do. No. This is a sovereign God that says, this will happen. These things will come to pass for you. They will be bad. And watch as I work through these things for your good. For your good. Amazing, amazing truth. Westmount, think with me. Only a sovereign God alone could promise this. We see it in Genesis, now we turn back to Exodus. Only a sovereign God alone could promise this. Only an all-powerful, providential hand of our supreme God alone can do this. Only He. And today we'll see again that sovereign hand of God at work. In fact, in this passage, these opening 10 verses of chapter 2, we have what we might call a recipe for providence. A recipe for providence. The ingredients and how God alone brings these ingredients together. Let's consider the first one. Look down with me. Verse 1, God's sovereign work, the first ingredient, ordinary circumstances. Ordinary circumstances. We read this. Now a man... From the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. That is about a pedestrian as a beginning as you could get, right? It's about as simple as it gets. There's nothing extraordinary here. And I want us to note, beloved, because we'll see details later in the book, the absolute 
absence of details at the beginning here. A man takes a wife, and that woman conceives and bears a son. Now, later, of course, in Exodus 6, we will find out that the man's name is Amram. We will find that out. And later, in that same chapter 6, that the wife's name is Jochebed. We're going to get there, but that's not now, because these details aren't important now. These specifics are omitted here in Exodus 2, because our names, people's names, are not the focus here, and we need to see this. Yes, we need to know that they're Levites, that's important, both from the same Israelite tribe whose significance we also do not need to know until later, and that is a significant detail, but we don't need to dwell on that. Again, though, for now, this is all we're given. Look at it. That's all you're given. These are very ordinary people and ordinary circumstances. And here it is, the emphasis as this chapter opens lies on the ordinary, the everyday character of these events. Do you see that? Even the birth expression, look at the beginning of chapter, or verse 2. Even the birth expression, that is so common in the Old Testament. You see that expression over and over again. The woman conceived and bore a son. That's a very ordinary expression. Church, let us not miss this intentional focus as this chapter opens. Because as this story unfolds and we realize soon who this boy grows up to be, we can be tempted to miss this ingredient, this ordinary beginning. This birth of Moses is not by way of supernatural appearing, right? There's not a bassinet supernaturally dropped from the sky. And that's not how it works with the birth of Moses. This is a man and a woman, husband and wife, having a son. Ordinary, everyday stuff. And I might add, ordinary circumstances for all of us. We all came into the world this way. We all did. There is no one that didn't. This is no extraordinary detail reserved just for Moses or for the very special among us. That brings me to another myth that we need to bust this morning. Listen carefully. The myth that God only works through special people or extraordinary people. Have you heard that one? God can only work through really special people, maybe second blessed people, Right, higher plane people. He can only work through those people. I'm sure that you've heard that, and maybe, maybe that thought still rattles around in your head when you look at circumstances and you look at your very ordinary circumstances. Yet I want you to see here that God is not working through this is the intention of the opening of this chapter. He's not working through anything special here. At this point, Moses, who's the divine author here, is deliberately holding back to say, hey, there is nothing glamorous about my birth here. Nothing. And that's the first ingredient we need to see in God's providence. There are not some things or special things that God works through. But God's providence works through Market Westmount, all things and all people, ordinary circumstances. That's one. Let's move on now to the second ingredient in God's providence, ordinary circumstances and active choices. Active choices. We keep reading in verse 2. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Do you see that? Something about this baby makes the mother want to hide him for three months. Don't miss that. Now remember, the hiding is what? It's a direct result of what did we read in chapter 1? You've got an execution order. What mother wouldn't want to hide a baby? So you want to be clear about that. Certainly every mother would want to hide their child in the wake of that. However, don't miss this, Westmont. That's not what the pen is pointing us to here. You see that? The text is drawing our attention to something else. That, of course, would be true of moms, but the text says, look at this, look at this. When she saw that he was a fine child. In fact, grammatically... The reason stated is that he was a fine child. That because of this, then that. And the adjective there is very key. What's the adjective? It says he was fine. The Hebrew word behind that is tov. Tov. That's the word normally translated as good. And some of your translations may have that. When she saw he was a good child. If you've been at Westmount for a while, you know we often comment on the word good Good. How that word has lost completely its biblical meaning in our watered-down world. I mean, we throw around good 
like it's falling off trees. We say good to everything. We say it's good, I'm good, all good. We just go on and on about how everything's good. And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But in that, we lose what the Bible says. The Bible says, Psalm 14, Romans 3, what? There is none good, no, not one. That is because good, tov, is not our business. None does good. But tov, good, is the work of who? God alone. Genesis 1, God looking on his new creation, and we're told in verse 25, and God saw that it was good. That's his creation, his work. The only thing that can be called good. And that word good there in Genesis 1 is tov. It's the same word. Genesis 1.31, what about at the end of that chapter? Even more emphatically and closing a very active opening chapter of creation. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very tov. It was very good. Beloved, that which is good, that which is tov is only of God alone. And that's the story of the Bible And we've tracked so much of this this summer, even this morning, Jerry had mentioned it as well. This is the story of the Bible, the good set against the not good, the evil. Those aligned with the good, the tov, the seed of the woman to come, and those aligned with the not good, the evil, the seed of the serpent. And here in Exodus 2, these ordinary parents look on, they look at this child, and the text tells us they see that he is good. Now listen, we don't know what prompts them to. And we certainly don't want to guess. That's not our business as we read the text. We just know from the plain reading of this text that they see he is good. And that recognition, here it is, spurs action. And that's what we need to see here. They act. They do not sit back. They act. They take the baby who is in grave danger and they hide him. And then look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer... They've been hiding him. Now she can hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Mom takes or makes this baby a basket. And I want you to note the careful construction that's going on here. Don't miss this. It's made of bulrushes, which are really papyrus reeds. It's that marine plant, right, that you see down by the shore. It's that tall reed-like plant found often in shallow water by the shore. It's called in some parts of the world, fittingly, Nile grass. That's what it's called. Mother weaves together these papyrus leaves and then finishes it. Look at the care. It's not enough to just weave it. She puts a seal on it. Do you see that? She takes bitumen and pitch, which is really like asphalt or mortar, That's what it is. She's sealing it. And she daubs that over the basket. Can you imagine the mom's care? Everything watertight for my child. Like a coating or a sealant so that he will be okay. There's an execution order over his head. But I'm going to daub the basket. Then she's careful to place that child-filled basket, not in open water. Do you see it? Not to be carried away, but look at verse 3. Among the reeds, the reeds, of course, would be right by the shore, by the riverbank. In other words, mom puts it in the safest place she can, by the shore, by shade, away from predators. And if that wasn't enough, note this extra step of action. Look with me at verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The baby's sister, by the way, do you see this, also unnamed at this point, but we find out later is who? Miriam. Miriam. Isn't it interesting? That detail is not important right now. The baby's sister stands at a distance, but with an eye shot. Note that extra care. Mom says, Miriam, you go down and you keep watch on him. That is a lot of activity, is it not? Especially in light of a decree that initially one mother might seem powerless under. And what do we make of this activity? What do we make of these details? What do we make of all these measures carried out? Well, I want to highlight three aspects that we simply must take with us this morning. Number one, another myth to bust. Another myth to bust. That God does it all and we just sit back. God does it all. Just sit back. Of course, we don't say it that way, right? That just sounds too harsh. What do we say? We get poetic and we say what? Let go and let God. I've got nothing to do. This is all God. I'm just sitting back. 
Listen to me. For sure, friends, there is truth in that little grain there from mom and sister. I mean, after, that's the key, after all that basket making, after all that careful preparation, after all that activity and responsibility, that's key, after they do what they need to do, then they turn and ask, well, what else can we do? And some onlooker may say, wow, you have done a lot. You have done a lot. After the child safely in the water, we turn to them and say, there's nothing more for you to do. You know what you do? You turn to God. There's nothing left to do but to pray and cast your burden on the Lord. Psalm 55, 22. Yet Christian, how many of us let go of the rope well before this point? You know what I'm talking about? How many let go of the rope well beyond this? How many simply hear Pharaoh's decree and throw their arms up in despair? You just hear it, and that's it. It's over. How many receive the order in fear and just sit back in paralysis? How many let go and let God when there is so much more, not only to do, but that God calls you to do? How many let go and let God, and it's just so premature? This mother and daughter market didn't rock themselves to sleep with passivity. No, instead, they took active responsibility Under the trust of God. Do you remember who they feared in chapter 1? Who did they fear? God. God. So that activity is not doing too much. Don't, Don't pull Martha into this. This is them doing what they are supposed to do, what the good God fearer does. The active responsibility with active choices that mean much. They got busy doing all, and here it is, all that they could possibly do until there was nothing left to do. Amazing. This concurrence between our responsibility and God's providence is so poignantly expressed by George Bush. Now listen, not the 20th century president, the 19th century theologian. I love his words here. I'm actually going to quote him in full. I pray you're blessed by this. I was this week, and I'm just going to quote him in full. I don't want to mess with stuff like this, so let me quote him. This is a beautiful illustration of the connection which should always exist between the diligent use of means and a pious trust in providence. Instead of sitting down in sullen despair or passive reliance on divine intervention, everything is done which can be done by human agency to secure the wished-for result. The careful mother pitches every seam and chink of the frail vehicle as anxiously as if its precious deposit were to owe its preservation solely to her care and diligence. Wow. Nor even yet does she think she's done enough. Miriam, her daughter, must go and at a distance watch the event. And here we behold all the parties standing precisely upon the line where the providence of human effort, foresight, and industry ends and providential work begins. This mother has done her part. The rushes, the slime, and the pitch were her prudent and necessary preparations. And the great God has been at the same time preparing his materials and arranging his instruments. He causes everything to concur by the simple and natural operation of second causes to bring about the ends designed in his counsels from everlasting. End quote. That's it. Beloved, that's it. You do all that you can possibly do until, yes, you are exhausted in your doing. And then you let go and say, God, I've been responsible. I have served you well. I pray I was your ambassador. And now I am on my knees doing the only thing remaining to do and begging you to take this. That's it. That's it. We are diligent to do all we can while trusting in God's providence. Two, these Israelite mother and daughter, this Israelite mother and daughter, are not the first Hebrews to act carefully. Maybe you've picked this up already. Or we could say they're not the first ladies to act shrewdly in Exodus. What was the command of Pharaoh? Look at verse 22 of chapter 1, the last verse of the first chapter. It was this, cast every son into the Nile. Well, beloved, I would submit to you that these two ladies did just that. Reminiscent of the Hebrew midwife's shrewdness before Pharaoh, this mother and this sister do exactly that. They carry out the command. 
of course, add some touches. They obey, but here it is, they obey their true master. You see that? They fear their true Lord. These ladies could say, yes, we cast him into the Nile. Third, look at that word for basket there. That word is teba. That word is only found, this is amazing, in two accounts in the Old Testament. It's here in Exodus 2, and it's also previously, do you know where? Genesis 6 to 9. Do you know what the teba is in that account? It is the ark. It is that box, if you will, to get really down into the word. I think you know the basket of the ark. It was an ark also made from plant materials and also covered with pitch, as the text tells us. If you're reading from the KJV, it gives you a hint. It actually translates basket as what? Ark here. And as we've learned, beloved, there are no coincidences. Beloved, this is no random association. In both cases, by way of an ark, a tabah, God preserves. Here it is, the means of deliverance. In both cases, deliverance is providentially preserved through Noah and his family for humanity and through Moses in this basket for his people. And note this, church, these baskets and arks didn't drop from the sky. Don't miss that. God didn't drop an ark for Noah, and he certainly didn't make this basket just appear for Jochebed. They became vessels of deliverance made by human hands and human activity and human responsibility that then God could take over and be used by him because of active choices. Okay, one key ingredient left, ordinary circumstances, active choices. Look at the last one, divine coordination. Divine coordination. God's people, as we've just said, have done all that they can. That's it. There's nothing more to do. So what's next? We see now human effort give way to divine power. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Lo and behold, do you see this account? Lo and behold, the basket and the child are discovered. We shouldn't even be shocked at this point, right? Westmount, do you see the providential details? The providence that someone approaches the riverbank of that spot, of all spots. The providence that that someone is a woman, and I have to interject here. One wonders, this is just me, one wonders what a man would do when he finds that. Under the king's order. The tender heart of a woman that finds that basket. Beloved, do not miss God's design in male and female and his providence. And the providence that the woman happens to be, lo and behold, wait for it, Pharaoh's daughter. Who did this? Now you might say Pharaoh's daughter. Wasn't Pharaoh the one that issued the decree? This is where it gets interesting, right? In fact, you might think this has backfired. The skeptic in the room may be rubbing his hands to say it all backfired at this point. The child is now right smack dab in the hornet's nest, right? Well, beloved, mark this. Human reasoning always has a way of missing the divine picture. Human reasoning always has a way of missing the divine picture. We continue in verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Stunning. The circumcised flesh of this male baby is a dead giveaway to any onlooker. This is a Hebrew, no doubt about it. This is a Hebrew. Yet Pharaoh's daughter, look at it, look at it very carefully, took Pity on him. The word behind pity there, the word for that means to feel something, to emote something in such a way that you do something, that you want to have mercy and here spare one's life. It's not just feeling soft at seeing a commercial. This is you are moved from the very depths of your being to do something about what you're seeing. That's what this word is. And of all the women in Egypt that you want to feel pity for this baby, it's who? It's who? One of Pharaoh's relatives. It's no small detail because it is likely any other, mark this, any other Egyptian woman wouldn't have the sway of this one. Is that not true? Who would have the sway like Pharaoh's daughter? 
Pharaoh's very daughter. And when she brings home this Hebrew and says, Daddy, look! You can just imagine, he's worked up, I've made an order. He says, okay, just one. (laughs) Just one, right, dads? Just one. Just this one, but I tell you, no other babies. And beloved, we jest about that, but to prove a point, this is God in every detail. And this is the God we know. Just this one is all God needs for this divine coordination to preserve life. But of course, mark it, the account doesn't end there. It could and we'd get much. We would go home filled and edified and enraptured. We could, but it doesn't end there. We'd miss the much bigger point about who our God is. Consider what comes next. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Well, look at this. Who is ready and waiting, standing close by the child's sister? There's Miriam. And of course, she's ready to help. The sister says, Do you need a Hebrew to nurse him? Do you see how she just dovetails into this? Oh, you realized he's a Hebrew? Do you need a Hebrew to nurse him? What a helpful question, little girl. We don't know how old Pharaoh's daughter was, but presumably she didn't have the time or the ability to take care of this child naturally. That's important. She only brought the pity, and pity was enough to keep this child alive. Do you see that? God coordinates the rest. The child, mark this Westmount, will be nursed by not just any Hebrew woman, but by who? His own mother. Imagine. And again, it could end there. I mean, it could end there. And the irony would be positively delicious and edifying, right? It could end right there. And we'd say, what a great God we have. In the end, the child's not only saved, but raised by his own mother with the backing and protection market. You talk about an insurance policy. Pharaoh's very own daughter's got this one. Amazing. But it doesn't end there, does it? Yet there is one more important child-rearing detail. Look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Pharaoh's daughter turns to the child's mother and says, Nurse him, and I will give you your wages. Wow, look at that, beloved. I will pay you. Christian, hear it. That is Pharaoh's daughter, unbeknownst to her, Paying the child's mother to do what almost every mother would more than pay to do. Is that not true? I mean, to truly appreciate the providence of God, we need to just step back. I want you to do that with me. Chapter 1, Pharaoh issues a decree. All Hebrew babies slaughtered. Pharaoh, remember, he's no small pawn. He's the most powerful man in the land. If you're a Hebrew mother, what are you thinking? I don't know how this ends. So then you tell, you bypass all this, and you come to this Hebrew mother and say, well, you're going to have a baby, and not only are you going to nurse it, but you're actually going to be paid by Pharaoh from the court of Pharaoh to bring him up. Don't we do the same thing? Beloved, right now, are you not, have you not done that in your life right now? Do you need to be astonished at the providence of God in your life this morning? I'll tell you, I don't know about you. I do in these times. When I look back, I, look, I'm tempted like you to say, God, are you, do you have this one? Oh, yes, he does. You're here today, aren't you? It's astonishing. I will pay you. I will pay you. Only God alone can coordinate that kind of protection and provision that we see here. This providence of God, of course, begs the question, as we land... What child is this? What kind of baby is this? The next verse answers that question. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter even does this. If we could add an appendix, she gives the child a Hebrew name, right? It's just crazy. This is a Hebrew name. Of course, scholars debate on you know, Egyptian pieces here and there, but ultimately the narrator says, look, this is what it means in Hebrew. Moses. Moses means I drew him up out of the water. 
you maybe have a Bible with a footnote that tells you that Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for drying out. And beloved, it all comes full circle as we look at these opening 10 verses of this chapter. The child saved, raised by mom, and now given a Hebrew name. All that preservation and protection under what? The divine coordination of God. Did anything stop God in that account? No. Church, that is the providence of God always working through ordinary circumstances. The everyday, the everything, the you, the me, the all. That's the providence of God always working through active choices. Our responsibility, our decisions, our activities, all of them. And that's the providence of God always and only working through divine coordination. God's power and God's power alone bring this together. Beloved, consider this account this morning of the birth of Moses. And I ask you this. Could Miriam, Amram, Jochebed, could any Hebrew have orchestrated this? Could they have pulled out their whiteboard and say, okay, guys, okay, Hebrews, this is how it's going down? No. No, they couldn't. And I ask you, and I beg you to do this this morning, in these times, as you look back on God's providence in your life, could you have drawn up the family circle line that got you into the seat you're in today, could you have done that? Could you have authored this so you're sitting in this chair right now? No, beloved, you couldn't. And that is how you know, you know what you've always known. And it's what? God is God alone in every detail of your life. No matter if you're zigging or zagging up or down, he's in it all. Not promising you what you want in the means, but guaranteeing what you need in the end. That's your God. That's what he's doing. There is none righteous, no, not one, that can do this kind of tov, this kind of good. There is none like God alone that can deliver this child and mark it prosper this child too. I mean, he's in Egypt now, and he's under Pharaoh. We leave this account this morning with that detail slamming us in the face. Moses is in Pharaoh's house. I thought there was an execution order. Moses is in Pharaoh's house. And you would be forgiven if you thought you were having deja vu, right, Christian? As you just read from Genesis to Exodus, you're like, haven't I seen this before? Abandoned baby in a high court in Egypt? Remember Joseph, abandoned brother, yet eventually providentially ending up in Egypt. And church, you will see this providential delivery if you read your Old Testament over and over and over again. Let me just give you two from Jerry's teaching this morning. We were in settlement, right? We were in Joshua and Judges. Consider Samson in Judges 13, the mighty deliverer born to a barren mother. How would they have child? How would Manoah have child? One providentially brought into the world at that time to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Sound familiar? Consider Obed in the book of Ruth, the unlikely son of Boaz, and who, of all people, Ruth, who was a Moabite. The child providentially brought into this world, not only so amazingly in those circumstances, but becomes who? The grandfather of King David. That shepherd king who would deliver God's people throughout his lifetime. And of course, as we move to the new, new covenant, new testament, consider the one greater than Moses. Consider the one greater than Moses, born of lowly circumstance, born under execution orders. Consider the one greater than Moses, preserved through parental action and ending up in a flight in Egypt. Consider the one greater than Moses, born to set his people free. Consider this one. As Hebrews 3 describes him, consider this one. Just hear this comparison the author of Hebrews gives us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You tell me if that's not providence. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. And so he is today, is he not? But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Beloved, we are his house, not built by our hands, but working through us. Jesus has built this house. It's the work of him and him alone. And in his house, in his body, united in him, we hold fast our confidence in him. And beloved, now is the time today, as all the men have said already, among the chaos. We hold fast, we cling tight to our only hope, our only deliverer. Like Moses' sister and parents did millennia ago. We do what we are called to, then we trust him. We trust he is working in and through all things for good. We believe that. We look ahead like they did in Hebrews 11. All of those saints that have gone before us, looking ahead, they waited for his coming. And beloved, I want to piggyback of what Gary said. So are we, are we not? Are we not waiting for his coming? Maybe even more in these days, right? Maybe even more. Then Israel's strength and consolation, but now I pray he is this and this. I pray he is this today for you, the ruler of your heart. I pray he, you have given him that. He is the ruler of your heart, and you are in obedience to him alone. For us all Christians, he is our only deliverer, and you've seen today that he is mighty and he is God alone. Let us sing now. Let us sing like they have for the ages and yearn for and rest now our long-expected Jesus. Let's do that together. Father, we thank you that we can do that together. We thank you that we can look in your word. We thank you, Father, that we can be what we are today, sitting in this chair because of your providence. God, maybe this morning we need that reminder we could never We could never orchestrate such things. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us when we doubt. Forgive us when we take our actions too far. And forgive us when we give you no thought. Lord, I pray as we leave this place today that you would renew in us this expectation, this trust, this longing for you. God, we beg it now in the name of your son. Amen.